Pot here. Today I'm joined by Tim Johnpress, who hails from Texas, USA. Tim's got a background in software engineering and in martial arts. And we discuss a really important topic on courage. How does a leader learn to be more courageous? How does a leader learn to develop a sense of courage, speak to what needs to be said with tact and direction without it becoming a career-limiting move? We also discuss somatic awareness. Now, for those who may not be aware of that phrase, somatic awareness really means how do I tune into what's going on around me other than using my sense of logic? And in a really funny example, Tim walks us through how he has helped, as he says, ranchers, oil men, and bankers learn to bypass their arrogance by using a sense of somatic awareness to some extraordinary results. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning, we shall never surrender. What's going on for you right now? Just tell me what you're experiencing. Well, then the dots kind of connected and I had some huge awakenings and it called me to the moment. And in the moment, there was a treasure of learning, things to explore, just by saying, what are you noticing right now? Welcome to the Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Tim, from Texas to the latest episode of the Leadership Diet. Great to see you. Great to see you, Pod. Thank you for the opportunity to visit with you and your audience. Tim, I'm going to start with an unusual topic in terms of leadership, and that is the topic of martial arts. I know you're a lifelong practitioner. I know you're, you operate at a very high grade. I know you post to Facebook regularly some of these really extraordinary moves that a 20-year-old man would find difficult to mind a man of my age. Tell me how you got started into that and how that influences the work that you do. I started probably a little late in my martial arts career. I started at the age of 18, and um, I was always pretty athletic in school, basketball, things like that. And um, when I went off to college, I realized I wasn't doing anything to, you know, just work out. And I really enjoy being active. And so literally hanging out with some of my buddies one night, we noticed this martial arts school next to a parking lot where we were hanging out as 18-year-olds. And uh, so I decided to check it out. And um, I visited the instructor, signed up for class. I'd always been fascinated by martial arts, even as a small boy. Um, and probably by my second or third belt, I think I was green belt, I had an awareness that actually I might have some talent around doing this thing called martial arts. And probably halfway to black belt, I realized it was so much more than just kicking and punching. And I started feeling more confident, um, feeling better about who I was as a person, even at those, you know, at a, at a pretty young age. So I stuck with it. And um, what was fascinating, the connection between martial arts and coaching was I was 21 and I received my black belt and I was given the kind of the instruction saying, great, you're a black belt. Now you have to start teaching. And you're assigned kind of like junior students to help okay. progress and work one-on-one -on -one with. And um, I was pretty nervous because I wasn't quite sure. I was a relatively shy guy. And 
my instructor gave me this uh, young lady. Her name was Susie. And Susie was uh, very nice, very enthusiastic, uh, a bit awkward. She had big, thick Coke bottle glasses um, and probably not the most gifted uh, uh, student. But Sounds like me, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> what was so compelling about her is her enthusiasm, and she was determined to get her black belt. And so I worked with her, and it was just a joy working with her and actually seeing her grow through the different ranks. When she got her black belt, I'll never forget the day, uh, she came up and gave me a big hug after she was awarded her belt. And that feeling still lives with me today. The joy in seeing somebody accomplish something that they weren't quite sure and knowing that I had a small part. And so that was the beginning of my coaching career. Um, I still I went on to teach for many years. I still teach from time to time. Um, but I've transferred all that I learned in those years of teaching and I started applying and that was beginning my coaching career. And what style or what philosophy of martial arts do you practice? My initial style was Taekwondo, pretty uh, global, pretty popular style of martial arts out of South Korea. And then I started another style in addition to that called Tukong Muso, which is another South Korean style. The reason I was really drawn to Tukong is it was, I think, a great evolutionary step because it, it blended mindfulness, meditation, the soft arts of Tai Chi, um, and more importantly, Master used to call it uh, action philosophy. He was as dedicated to teaching us to become better people in addition to becoming better martial arts. And that was very, very appealing to me. As a guy who kind of, by the time I got on my, my first black belt, I realized there was something almost spiritual about uh, the training to me. And so as my practice grew and I continued training, I started developing into more of the inner game, as we say, of martial arts, in addition to all the outer game. And um, it's become literally my religion. It's a way of life and a philosophy of development and learning. And what's fascinating is, you know, having gone through a lot of tough lessons, being able to bring that to clients. And when they say, have you ever been through something like this? Sure, I have. And I've got a few ideas on how we can work through those. I can really understand the, the notion of the physicality, keeping you fit and healthy and agile, but the philosophy is what drives you as a human being. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even to this day, you know, people say, what's it like to be, you know, what's the secret to becoming a master? And I said, well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not about the kicking and the punching. And it's really wow. about the mindfulness, the philosophy, and the consciousness of your, that you put into your practice. Ahead of today, we, we were chatting uh, in ahead of our conversation, and indeed we've had this chat many times in different parts of the world when you and I have met, and that's the notion of somatic development in the sense of knowing your body and, and sensing your body. And given your background in martial arts, it's no surprise that you are you know, a big believer in somatic awareness. Tell, tell us more about you know, what it is. And, I, and, and I'm really intrigued. You know, you're in Texas, right? That's, that's renowned for oil men and ranchers. It's not renowned for ballerinas, per se. And, and I say that with a degree of cynicism. But you know, how do you use uh, somatic development in your work? So early on in uh, working with some of the masters, when we would be training they would ask the question, what are you noticing about your body as you do the different forms or the techniques? How does it feel? What are you noticing about foot position or hand position 
or even just the stance. And I remember early on they would have us take stances of strength, big energy, as Master you call it, or playing small. And so I really used that and used my body as a um, almost like a temperature gauge to check in on how I'm doing on the inside because there's a the body reflects what's going on internally in your focus, attention, your consciousness. The body reflects that. And when you start developing that practice and get some uh, a heightened degree of somatic awareness, unexpectedly what I learned is that I was able to start sensing what was going on with people that I was either working with in martial arts, even more so now today in the coaching. There's a connection, and I believe uh, I call it working the unitive field. We're all connected. And when I start observing things within my own form, there's a pretty good chance when I'm working with somebody, I got a sense of what's going on for them. And so I've really probably leveraged that uh, to a great degree in just being able to connect with people. And then most powerfully is being able to start teaching some of that somatic awareness to my clients. One of my early coaches, he had this really great question and um, nobody ever asked me. He goes, what's going on for you right now? Just tell me what you're experiencing. Well, then the dots kind of connected and I had some huge awakenings and it called me to the moment. And in the moment, there was a treasure of learning things to explore just by saying, what are you noticing right now? Whether it's a group, an audience or yourself, getting them to just stop running the monkey mind and drop into their form and pay attention. For, for many people, it's surprising to me how little they do that. But when you get them to go inward, the amazing amount of uh, new possibilities or perspective that becomes available to them. Let's just, just maybe double down there a little bit, because uh, what, what you said could be perceived as being, uh, you know, on one hand, relatively flippant, on the other hand, very profound. And having done the work that you do, I know it's more towards the profound side of that, of that, of that equation. What what did you what do you notice when you're in a room with folks who may not be a uh, aware of mindfulness or may not practice that or may be less used to stopping to pause and notice what's in their body and then out of the blue in comes Tim John Press he's in the room and says what do you notice now what are you noticing in your body what's the reaction you find with that in every or in every group there's always what I call one or two people that are looking at you very very skeptically. And what I find for the most part, people want to participate. People want to have some kind of success, whether they believe in me or not. So what I learned is I sense that and I immediately can tune into the uh, people that are all in or the people that might be giving me a bit of a critical eye. The way I translate it, particularly with professionals, is saying, uh, speaking into their hearing, uh, asking them, okay, let's just think about this. You don't have to buy into mindfulness. As a leader, uh, is it important for you to know what's going on in your organization, having a sense or a pulse? And they go, yeah. How about the marketplace? Yeah. I said, does it make sense then to kind of pay attention to yourself and just do a check-in on how your system is working? And that seems to break the ice with them a little bit. And that's the challenge is with some of these more touchy-feely concepts, mindfulness, consciousness, you got to be able to make it meaningful and accessible 
to somebody who's never done anything like that or who may, you know, not even believe in things like that. And you just got to find a way to connect the dots from them. In your experience, Tim, you know, uh, when you bring this into this concept and this awareness into a, a group or into, uh, in, or into individuals who have not exposed to before, what kind of insight do they get from having to answer that question or, or from having to start noticing that? And then therefore, what does that lead to? Probably the biggest insight when they decide to participate, you know, I check in with them afterwards is being able to give voice and expression to what's going on inside. It's very liberating. And when they can do that with peers or even in a coaching session, they now have more a, a more grasp on something they didn't have any grasp or awareness of. So it's a pretty liberating moment for most people. I'm not saying it's easy, but what they find is like, wow, I didn't even know all that was going on inside of me. And now I can start to see how that's impacting how I'm showing up or what uh, uh, the types of practices or things that I'm doing as a leader or in my work. So it's a very liberating moment and it empowers them to say, okay, there's something to this. And here are some specific actionable things that we can do to shift, to keep you in a better place, to be more effective as a leader. I had a very similar experience uh, a couple of years ago now. I was working with one uh, chief executive, and, and, and like you, I started using that question, you know, what are you noticing? Where in your body is it? Can you give it a name or et cetera? And initially, it was, re- it was received with a fair degree of skepticism, I have to say, uh, and maybe wasn't as artful as you and how I introduced it. But over time, this particular lady um, developed a real sense of what was going on for herself to the degree that she then started sensing what's going on into the room far more than she'd ever noticed before. Started sensing where people were buying into or not buying into the conversation and where the concerns were. And was even at one stage able to pinpoint the exact concerns people were having before anyone had ever articulated it, which made her in the eyes of everybody else extraordinary in tune with them and therefore in their eyes very authentic now authentic was the wrong word she was just in tune right she's just listening to what's going on but uh, it made right. her far more able to lead change and to sense change and to have the conversation that needed to be had so you brought up a great point when people get a sense of the leader tuning in what's that experience on them they care they're having empathy they, have, they understand they can see me what happens to me, I'm more receptive to that leader. I'm, uh, my trust level goes up a little bit more. It's fascinating how that works. Let's jump from somatic into this whole notion of courage, which again is another, um, you know, in some senses an emotional trait, but certainly it's, it's, it's once on, it's on display, it's perceived by everybody, or the lack of is also perceived by everybody. I know in your own career, uh, you know, you're noted for being someone who stands with courage in, in yourself, and therefore you, you bring that to the conversation. And in our pre meeting before we got together today, you told me a fantastic story about you as a 31-year-old and your, I'm not sure it was your first client or your second client, where you really were tested and, and your own courage came out. Can you tell us more about that? 
one of the gifts of my father growing up with them and um he always had a sense of what was just right he wasn't very sophisticated um but he had a strong kind of ethics or values he just knew and he's he, he honored what was right even if it was difficult he always did the right thing and so that was instilled and it was a pretty profound gift and I've been able to leverage that uh, in my career. The incident, you know, I have a sense of what's going on. And even if something doesn't look right, I have a deep sense of what's right. And again, based on just growing up with my dad, to give that voice and to act on that. And I think that's been one of the, the gifts of my coaching. It's one thing that stands out my clients tell me is you're absolutely relentless. You'll go anywhere we need to go. You're fearless about it. So it was my second client. It was a bank in West Texas. And this is the bank, you know, cattle ranchers, farmers, oil guys, some pretty rough guys, very wealthy. Right. Very serious. And they called me in for an emergency board meeting. Um, the CEO and the president were having uh, some significant disagreements and they were worried about the business. And so they asked me to just come in and facilitate and observe the board and the interaction and see if we couldn't figure out a way to make it work better. I said, sure. And so I probably spent the first half of the, miss, the, the meeting just listening and probably because I was a little terrified because these most of the guys were 40 years older than me probably a collective net worth of a half a billion dollars. Here I was just this, you know, young 31-year-old guy. What, what's, so I'm watching the dance, getting to notice all the players were, started feeling a little more comfortable. And then the latter part of the meeting, they started grilling the CEO and the president. The board members did. And I could see the CEO and president both getting very uncomfortable. Something just didn't make sense to me. And they were concerned about the performance of the business, the relationships, all that thing. And I said, hey, guys, can I ask this uh, just kind of a simple question? And they said, sure, Tim. I said, I know I'm only 31 years old and I don't have a lot of business experience. But is it true? Isn't it the job of the board to support, guide the president and the CEO. And I said, you guys are attacking them for all these things that are going on in the business. And yet I don't understand how you guys could let this happen. And now you're holding them accountable. Boom. <laughs> it was, I don't think anybody had talked to them like that. After a moment or two of silence, and I was literally terrified, like they were going to throw me out of the room. The, the chairman of the board, he was probably 80 years old, this very frail old man. He kind of looked over the table and he said, you're right, Tim, we screwed up. <laughs> and you went relief. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget Don. He's such a great guy. And what happened after that is everybody kind of settled down. We all kind of started just telling the truth about what was really going yeah. on, what wanted to happen. And um, what was fascinating is the president, 
of that business, he said, you know what? I'm 65. I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. And that's the honest truth. I love you guys, but I'm just tired. Great. So we got new leadership in place. And that business is still in 25, 30 years ago. It's still in business today. Wow. Wow. It's a great story. What, 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 what I find interesting about it, uh, as, well as, as well as the risk you took, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't like you were being critical of or judging of. Uh, you were noticing what was going on and you rather artfully pointed out, here's what I'm observing, and then you asked a question. And I, I think that's really important, that technique to use, because as you and I both know, there's a, a thin line between being courageously authentic or just courageous and being critical. And, 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 the, and the, the difference is the, the, the artful way you do it. H- how do you help leaders develop their own sense of courage or their own sense of speaking out? Because it, it, it is one of the derailers to great leadership is the ability to, to artfully speak out what needs to be said. So how do you help leaders develop that? Well, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of things that we do, but I would say initially up front is, as the coach, I have to be willing to model courageous authenticity with the leader and just by coaching with them and um, uh, creating a safe space for them to start being more authentic with me and quite honestly themselves, that's where it begins. And the authenticity begins with maybe a 360 assessment where they get a complete snapshot and just owning it and being able to handle the results, whether they're great results or not so great results. So that's where it starts. And it creates a um, kind of a bubble of safety for them in the coaching relationship. Then when we start expanding and working with the team, you know, we'll set some guidelines for how we're going to work together. And then I can actually work with the leader and their team members, drawing people out or just creating even a safer container for more of the, uh, the courageous and authentic and honest conversations to happen. And then coaching and guiding people. Again, it's 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 teaching and then modeling the way, even in some of those meetings. Um, so that's kind of the external game or the outer game. The inner game is uh, some of the deep inner work, exploring beliefs, experiences, inner narratives that keep them from being courageously authentic. So there's a short game, some specific practices. And then the longer game, which is more of the deeper inner work, mindset work, consciousness work. And you actually, I work them both simultaneously. Right, right. So, so, so it feels like you're giving them some techniques to get some early wins or to fake it till you make it type thing. And then the same token, let, let's do the deep work so you don't revert backwards later on. You actually set in a whole foundation for, for growth and, and courageous growth. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It really does work hand in hand. But again, busy professionals, they want to see some results. They need to see something that can work right away. So you've got to be yeah. able to give them that. I've I found in my own career, um, specifically talking about courage now, because it is one of those traits that is contagious when it works really well, and it's it's uh, it's really obvious when it's absent. I found that some of the beliefs that you refer to um, can be as simple as um, uh, they won't like me if I stand out, or they 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 want me to fit in, therefore I dare not do this, or or in some cases, which is obviously a reality, my career might be at risk if I voice this. How have you found those belief patterns uh, or similar belief patterns to be true? And then how do you help someone to reformat some belief patterns in that space? 
Yeah. So there's just probably what I call the, the top three or four or three, five common patterns. The biggest one is I'm not good enough. Um, the second one is I don't fit in or I don't belong here. And the third big one with professionals, and this is, this is a big one. Um, I'm afraid people will find out that I might not know what I'm doing. I'm a fraud, right? I'm in the imposter syndrome. So through some of the work that I use in my 8K coaching process, we get down to whatever those core beliefs are. And then using a very simple technique from NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, I just do very simple reframing and anchoring. So the first thing I do before we get to the framing and re-anchoring is, as an adult, can you absolutely 100% all the time know you're not good enough? Yes or no? Is that true? Well, when they think about it, no. Great. So just by asking that question, is it always true? I'm not good enough, competent. I'm an imposter, blah, blah, blah. What that does, it unhooks them from the grab of that deep, that deep belief. Then I ask them to just say, what is the 100%? What is another truth that you know that is the opposite of this one? I'm not good enough might become, I'm pretty amazing. Great. And then I'll ask them, I'll, uh, can you give me one real life experience where you had a moment and you knew you were amazing? Personally, professionally, it doesn't matter. Even if it's just a second where you had a, a sense of being amazing. And I'll have, and I'll have them just start telling me the stories. And then I might be doing little things like anchoring it or making a noise or have them take a deep breath and say, just sit in that and soak in that for a minute. And depending upon what I'm sensing with the client, I may only have to do two or three, or I may have to do 20 to the point where they go, this is ridiculous. And they start laughing. Ah, when they start having some humor about it, that's when I know we've kind of shifted something inside. Well, we haven't. We, we, we did shift something inside. And it's that moment of liberation. So disconnecting, is it true, yes or no, all the time? Uh, give me an example of something completely opposite. And then give me a real life experience. Now, I could do that in five to ten minutes. It used to take me weeks and months to do to kind of get the relationship. But that nice, simple little reframing process, and there's hundreds of them out there to do it. I just use the simple one. Is the one that's really, boom kind of gets people and they go, and you can, what's interesting is then you see their whole face transform. Their whole body just kind of opens up. They relax a little bit more. You use the word liberty there. There's, there's a liberation with this. And I completely agree with you because, you know, all of us are held captive to our beliefs up to the point that we actually understand what the belief is. And and, and then, then we can go, okay, hold on. I believe this for quite a while. Now let me look at this. Let me look at this in a, in a different light to see if it still helps me. Um, it's a phrase I I love using, which of course is the name of a famous book. What got you here won't get you there, and and a belief pattern clearly has helped you, but it may not continue to do so. And I think uh, the notion of courage is one of those leadership traits that if you're being held back by a belief pattern, it's time to change the belief pattern. That's exactly right, and it does require great focus and courage, and to do that deeper work as a coach. You've got to be able to have the courage and the presence to be able to stand toe to toe with these people and just hold the space. And 
I learned it from early on from fighting in the ring just to be able to stay centered and calm and strong. And it just kind of can, but with practice, any coach can learn this. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. The whole notion of you know, the world we're in right now, you know, we're in a really interesting, strange time. We're recording this in August 2020. Um, what are you noticing in your own career with the teams that you're working with in terms of the kind of help that they need, the kind of overwhelms that they might be in or not in, and then therefore, what are you doing to help them? What I am completely still amazed at is, you know, when you're in business and working, we're always focused on solving problems. We're always in this fixing, solving, creating, designing, which is great and necessary. But if we don't take a break for a moment to celebrate and anchor the things that we've done well, it's just like we're continually beating the dog. The dog's never going to thrive. And I would say a big piece of my work with teams is getting them to just take ownership and appreciation for what they've done that's worked well. And giving that a little bit of time to breathe, not just with me, but with themselves as a team. So the celebrating of the successes. Imagine a football team if we didn't have any chances to celebrate or any kind of team or even acknowledge a win. Not very motivating. So that's probably the biggest one where I, I spend extra time making sure that I'm building them up so we can have the energy and motivation to go tackle these big, hairy things that we've got to do. Second piece of the teams is always the, um, it's being able to bring voice to what's really in your heart. And a lot of people have the ability to do that. But the space, the team awareness or the team container, whatever you want to call it, there is a perception it's not safe, it's risky to be able to speak openly and honestly. And the challenge with that in today's market is things are moving so fast and the complexity is so extreme. And now with COVID, we're doing everything virtually. We can't afford to not be speaking completely authentically and honestly with, you know, as long as our intentions are noble and honorable and valuable. We can't afford to not do that because there's just so much at stake and it's so moving so fast and so quickly and rapidly. So as a coach with a team, we can become an accelerant and just clear the air so that they can just start getting down to things that are most important that'll drive themselves and the business forward. Those are probably the two biggest things. And are you finding you're spending more frequent time or less frequent time? Or is there any specific thing to doing with your individual uh, chief exec level leaders to help them uh, manage their sense of stress or overwhelm? Because I'm imagining uh, Texas is no different than any rest of the world where there's a, there's a lot happening with little information to help guide people going forward. Yeah, so all my individual clients, um, I do more frequent touch-ins, touch bases than we did and I'm getting more on the spot call saying, hey, how do you do this? Or what do you think? Or what is everybody else doing? Communication, messaging. Do we let people in, come back to work? Do we do a, keep them all at home? Do we do a hybrid? Nobody really knows because they're figuring this out. So 
my coaching with them has been more frequent communication um, and probably advocating a position more frequently than I would do in coaching. Uh, as we talked about earlier, when you've got a pandemic, um, asking them what they think they should do may not be the most effective coaching. Okay, here's what you need to do. One, two, three, and kind of give them a, an average, and we can work through this plan together. So helping them kind of think quick, think fast, think strategically. How do we get the communications? How do we get the work ver the, the, the workplace virtual? A lot of conversations around that. So that's immediately just how do we keep the business going, right? Then once we've put those plans in place, more frequent touches and what are you doing to take care of yourself? What are you doing to keep your culture alive now that we're not all dancing with each other in the office or interacting or meeting with colleagues? And we've had to do implement some different things, whether it's virtual happy hours or just increased communication and updates, um, which has actually been really, really good because people are getting more information. They've got a closer sense of the pulse of what's going on which is allaying their fears and worries and concerns. The third thing, and I had, I had to do this with a large tech executive. He's like, I don't know what to do. There's so much. And I said, you just need to keep holding the vision of what's possible. People are scared. People are afraid. People are worried. You got to keep acknowledging what is and keep encouraging and saying, listen, this is where we're going. We're still on plan. We're still on course. This is what we need you to do to step up. You got to show up just in a way of confidence because we're not getting that from anywhere else with that kind of conviction and resolution. That's probably the biggest thing that my coaching has been for leaders. You can't, you can't waver, not when you're in front of your team because they're worried. And I've talked with people, they're scared. It's, you know, it's in the news everywhere. So be this icon of strength and focus. You don't have to have all the answers. You can, Admit when we don't know what's going on, but do it with conviction. There's a few things you said there that I think are really important. Um, and it, it brings back a, a conversation in mind that I had in, I'm going to say, early April of 2020 uh, with this exec team and the the um, the HR director of this particular team um, was absolutely struggling with, with what was going on uh, in, in the world in general. And I was brought in to run a, a virtual team session with the exec team because they were spread out across the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, and they typically would have got together face-to-face -face at least four times a year. And now we're running a three-day meeting uh, virtually for the first time. And the, the, the leader in question said to me, oh, can you bring all the evidence-based information you have on how we should be handling this? And the, the chief exec kind of turned around to, to look at, the, at this director, and I could see the chief exec, I was imagining the chief exec thinking, evidence base? Come on, it's, it's just kind of hit us like six weeks ago. Um, <laughs> and so my, 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 my reaction was, look, at this stage, there's not a lot of evidence base, but there's a lot of people experimenting and learning. How about we move into what can we experiment and learn with in sight of and in line with the vision that we, we have always held, knowing that we've been throwing this extraordinary curveball but we still got to stay on track while dealing with that curveball, which I think is what you've, is what you've been talking about. And that team dialed up their communication enormously, yeah. uh, particularly using homemade videos. Yeah. Uh, you know, had a, 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 a great impact. And, and I, I would say dialed up the connection across the organization uh, tenfold compared to where they were two weeks earlier. Yeah. Yeah, and have 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 done well. Have have done well, um, but it's it's amazing during times of stress like this. We we do want to reach for the expert view, 
And sometimes, you know, executive coaches can help provide a view, uh, but helping people to ramp up their learning and experimenting is, is probably the, the, you know, the most useful uh, technique that they can deploy as a group, I would imagine. Yeah. I want to jump over to the eight-gate process. This is a, a, a framework, I suppose, if you will, um, that I know you've been developing and testing for over 10 years, and, and uh, I've, uh, I've seen the, the impact this can have. Can you talk us through you know, the framework and, and how it can be useful for a leader and maybe share, us a, share with us a, a story to illustrate uh, the impact it can have? I kind of want to set a little context when I got into coaching, I was just back in the mid nineties. I was really fascinated by even back then the amount of things you could learn and absorb about how to coach and teach and mentor. And as you can imagine with the internet, um, now 25 years later, there is an infinite stream of experts, techniques, practices, programs, certifications, and how to be a great coach. So much so that it can be exhausting and overwhelming at times saying, well, what's the best approach to use with clients? Is it this model? Is it that practice? And I found myself literally jumping from book to book, time to time, pulling all these different things. And as a former electrical engineer, it was frustrating. Where's the platform? Where's the unified operating system? How does this all come together? And so the last thing I wanted to do was put another piece of coaching content out in the marketplace. There's tons of good stuff and it's all excellent. But the one thing that's missing is how do we make all this great material work together? One, and how do we make it applicable to you, the client, based on your context, your timing and what your needs are? And so... This was around the time of the Apple iPhone when it came out. And I saw the brilliance of that thing is Apple created a platform with the iPhone. And then subsequently, they opened up the operating system to create cuts. So you, anybody could make any custom application they could dream of. And it would work beautifully on this platform. And it got me thinking, where's the unifying platform and operating system for coaching? There's tons of great models, but it's still a bit fragmented. And so it got me thinking, how can, how can I honor everything that's out there, make it comprehensive and complete, and make it completely scalable, agile, as necessary to meet the needs of my client? Because bottom line, it's what does the client need most in that moment? And how can I deliver the most impact and value? in the shortest amount of time. So that's, I worked with this thing, started tinkering with it, locked it in about 10 years ago and have been testing it with my wife, my partner. And um, it's it works as beautifully as in coaching as the iPhone. So we initially began our work with um, the eight gates, helping to unpack 360 assessments. And again, it was very much driven by the customer's needs. They said, okay, Tim, here are my results. What do I have to do to change? I don't need theory. I don't need to know the tool. I get it. And I said, well, there's a short game and a long game, and we're going to take you through both. So we took them through. We developed this process to really help unpack a leader's 
specific uh, results. What are they doing to create these current level results from their mindset to their choices to their practices? And then in the same 90 minutes to two hours, helping them upgrade so that they can get a better outcome as a leader. And we can work the process very, the process is taught and worked very linearly, but it has the complete flexibility to uh, go wherever the client needs to go. Well, what we found is in about 90 minutes, we can create immediate deep somatic transformations with somebody. Like they will have a deep experience of becoming something new as a leader in the coaching session. They get, uh, um, they get liberated from their old operating system. And with that becomes a surge of energy, new possibilities. You're effectively so operating, uh, to use your language there, from one operating system to, to a, a newer, more f uh, freer uh, or more capable operating system. So what are some of the gates or some of the questions you bring people through to help them realize that? Yeah, so there's probably a couple of big ones. I call it, what's the payoff? So they, oh, they go, okay, you know, they, they take ownership that maybe they yell at people or maybe they just check out and that creates a certain impact on their team. And I ask them the question, what's the payoff? What's the payoff for yelling at people? What's the payoff for just completely checking out? And they look at me kind of funny, like there is no payoff. Well, there's a payoff behind everything we do because otherwise we wouldn't do it. You wouldn't be doing it. That's right. Yeah. And so when we get to the big payoff, I'm committed to being in control. I'm committed to proving my worth. I'm committed to proving you wrong. I'm committed to not getting hurt. I'm committed to being safe. That's a really deeply illuminating and liberating conversation. In the situation you just explained, as a leader, I'm yelling at my team or to an external supplier or to somebody because I'm committed to something else, such as being right or such as being in charge or such as not looking stupid or whatever. Okay, cool. And I get an energetic boost. I get a significant payoff, right? So that, that's gate number four, something we call the subconscious payoff or the hidden payoff. Right. And then we ask a very, uh, it's a tricky question. And this is where it gets into a little bit more complex aspects of the AK work. What's at risk for you as a leader? Or what inner story do you tell yourself about yourself if you're not proving to others that you're smart, right, all the above? They go, what do you mean, Tim? If you're not proving to people that you're right, if you're not doing that, what are you afraid might happen? Or what do you think it means? Well, it means I'm no good. I'm not valuable. I don't belong here. So we get to that conditioned mindset or that core belief. We call it conditioned mindset because we learned it somewhere in our training, education, or work history. And then we go into it and say, is it true? Do you, is that mindset helping you achieve anything that you want to achieve? No. What else could be possible? And then we get up into the other gates and start upgrading the operating system. That sounds like the question you've just asked there around what's at risk. I would imagine it leads to a pretty small number of recurring patterns. And, and maybe they're the ones that you mentioned earlier on today in terms of I don't fit in here, I'm concerned about. But there's, there's a regular pattern because humans are humans. We haven't changed that much in, in the centuries we've been around, have we? Our recurring patterns are always the same. That, yeah. That's exactly right. And like I said, there's probably about 10 of them that I see. 
And every now and then there's a little outlier because everybody's wired themselves differently. But there is that pattern. It's pretty predominant. And what I find fascinating is that even with COVID, on a global level, humanity is starting to work through some of the, it's starting to awaken these core beliefs and fears, which is a really, really one of the gifts because we can actually work through these and realize we can do something else other than walk around in fear or hate or blame or be victims. This process called the Agape gay process, and for anyone interested, we're going to have a link in the show notes to an article and a white paper that you've written about this, Tim. Um, but so to talk us to an example of, of a team or, or a leader where you've brought this through and, and you know, the kind of rapid impact it can have for them and what they do with that. One of the case studies in the white paper, a guy named Lane, very sophisticated uh, executive leader. I've worked with him in a couple of different companies. And he was a, a, a CFO of a $140 million retail, uh, online retailing business. It was in a, an organization affiliated with Home Depot. And the, he was up for succession to be the CEO. He said, I really want to become CEO. And so we did a 360 and um, unpacked his results. It was pretty humbling for him. But what came out of uh, the eight gate work was that he was, here's a, a, a Harvard grad, very well educated, Ivy League education, very smart, very sophisticated financially, technically. Well, he was over leveraging those skills and missing the whole people side of the equation. And so we worked once he realized it, and then we realized why did he over leverage those skills to fit in, to belong, to prove his worth. And when he realized he didn't have to do that anymore, he relaxed, started connecting with people. Um, he didn't get the CEO position, so he took another position and he went all in as the new uh, lane, we called him. And he was able to turn around a business in less than two years in, a, in an industry, oil and gas, that was struggling at the time. And he just, and then he was recruited by another company to be CEO, a large, which, and I checked in with him recently and he's like, all the wheels are balanced and working, lifestyle, business, and this is even during COVID, family, health and wellness. When he is able to shed that baggage of um, trying to fit in or prove his worth and just know that he's loved. Simple. I'm loved. It was life-changing for him. How often have we seen in our respective careers, you know, a, a leader or indeed, you know, uh, ourselves maybe, where we, we've strived so hard for our particular outcome and somewhere along the way someone has said to us, let go of that striving and just relax into serving the people who need to be served. Uh, and what happens is you don't get the role you're striving for. You actually get the outcome that the role would have wanted, and then you, you end up getting the role elsewhere because of that. Uh, you, you've learned the big lesson. Yeah, it's a bit like the uh, darker than light type Absolutely. You know, lesson you, you, you had to learn. Yeah, You know, the, you bring up a great, great point, particularly in the West, in America, we've got to be doing something to prove value. We've got to make things happen, which I completely agree with. But leaders get so over as a leader, and I'm talking in a leader context, they forget the whole other side of the equation, which is focus, attention, intention, and 
relationship. As a leader, you probably have to leverage more of those, and those are more effective than getting things done. That's what your team is for. And so I work a lot on the, and this is all the inner game of leadership. And I find that it has a huge, profound leverage. And the leaders are finding out that, you mean I don't have to do more? I remember one neurosurgeon, he said, you mean I don't have to do all this stuff as a leader? I can just show up with my people the same way I do with my clients, my, my, uh, my uh, patients? I said, yeah. Patients? And, he, and he, yeah. the weight of the world was lifted off his shoulder. I said, just have good bedside manners. I've started uh, using a terminology around different levels of doing and because, you know, that notion of being an action man or action oriented or getting stuff done, you know, huge, huge kudos to all of us who are able to do that. And indeed, you don't get promoted unless you get stuff done. Right. But to, to your point, if that's all you're focusing on, you, um, I need to be doing stuff. How do you reframe doing and and I think there's there's a different types of doing as you get more senior and certainly, you know, um, leaning away from always being busy and leaning into what's the conversations I need to be having with people I'm not having. It's a different type of doing and it liberates. Um, and the, the amount of execs I've I've learned, met over the years and helped f- to figure out what kind of doing is needed for this new role that's different from what I've done before. It just liberates and, and allows expansion. So to that point in the AK process, based on who I am and where my business is at or where I'm at a leader, we can get really dialed in to specific to the what level of doing that leader needs to be doing. And it's going to be different for him than her or somebody else. That's the beauty of that process is that you it help, and when you run a leader through it, you can get so granular and specific based on their context, needs, development. And they have a, a, a runway to completely continue to scale from that. And they, they, they get this blueprint, a specific blueprint, not theory, not models, not five keys, a specific blueprint for me. So this is what I need to do and not do. I've read your white paper. I've used it. I've used it on myself. And I can attest to the, the wisdom that's inherent uh, within the frameworks for anybody who wants to uh, to learn more and um, the links are in our show notes uh, for for Tim's white paper on his eight gate process Tim I'm we're coming to the end but I I, I want to uh, come to uh, may, maybe a profound question I'm not sure but I know something it comes back to something you and I talked about um, recently and this notion of, you know, in, in the world that we're in today, you know, it, it is changing. People are asking big questions. The world is asking big questions. And you and I pose a question to each other around, you know, what, what is it requiring of us as coaches in terms of, you know, what, 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 are, we, what are we being called to do now that the world is, is asking uh, of, of folks? And as you and I were chatting about that notion as to what are we being called to do, you're sharing with me a story uh, where you uh, asked almost the exact same question of, of a tech executive um, in light of um, some of the social changes in America with Black Lives Matters, etc. Do, do you want to share that? And, and, and the notion of the when you ask someone a powerful question, what are you being called to do? It opens up opportunities that they may not have even thought about. Yeah, and this was, again, one of those, it's probably one of the riskiest moves I've ever made as a coach in this session. So... This was in the midst of the, the pandemic about a month ago, I guess June or, yeah, it was in June. And uh, got on the Zoom chat with this particular leader and um, 
runs a large global organization in the tech space. Uh, it's all I'm really at liberty to say. And he said, Tim, you know, how do we manage our people through this? You know, what are you seeing? Not only just COVID, but the whole race and diversity conversation. He said, I'm in a place where I can actually do something about it. And I'm not sure how to go about doing driving change through the, the position that I'm in. And I, I was like, wow, I really admire your willingness to take on and actually do something with this. You know, and they said, well, here's the things we're doing, you know, systems, hiring processes, structures, things like that. Um, even little things right down to how they wear their badges. And I said, I think those are great. But if I may be candid, I said, it's not gonna, I think, I think you should do them, but I don't think it's enough. And he sat back and he said, what do you mean? And I said, listen, you've got all these talking heads on TV and talking heads and leaders. All they're doing is talking about the problems or blaming or being victims to something on all sides of the aisle. I said, if I could just hear somebody stand up and say, this is where we're going. This is what we want to see. This is what we're committed to helping build. I said, I would write a check. I'd get on a plane. I'd do whatever I had to do to work with that leader. And I said, so here's my suggestion if you're open. And he goes, I'm listening. And I said, what I would like to see from you first and foremost, in addition to all those um, kind of tactical things and important things, I'd like to see you come up with an MLK, I have a dream speech. And I said, I'd like you to have uh, to, to, to write it and then deliver it to your team globally, many thousands of people, and make it so compelling and so inviting. And I want to know what you want to see happen and what you can do to help make that happen. And this was all around mm -hmm. uniting, respect, race, racial equality, honoring the diversity. I said, just give us a really great vision of what you want us to see and uh, what you can do to support us in doing that. And he sat back in his chair and he said, wow. So I'm still going to follow up with him probably in a few weeks to see how it goes. But this is an organization that can't actually do something about it. And, you know, it's the same message I'm giving to a lot of my other leaders is, yes, let's take care of our people. But where do you want to go and what do you want to become? What do you want to do? And beyond just making money and having a great business, Give me something greater. We as coaches, we have the ability to have that conversation with our clients. We have a, a, a modicum of influence with them. We get them in touch with yeah. their heart and what's really important to them. We can help guide that and Sherpa that with them. That's why I get excited about this as a coach is because I think there is literally a battalion of coaches globally all I've never met a bad coach. They're all wonderful people. We are really committed to serving. Well, the world needs us to step forward and serve. And we have the ability to, you know, and tons of resources available to do it. I love the fact that, right, you know, right now the world is in a pause and it is in a, in a, in a question of 
um, you know, what if and, and, and what's happening and there's an opportunity. And, uh, you know, this is so rare to get to be able to get an executive attention when the whole world is on pause to go. You now have a, a, a potential to make a big decision or a, a big vision. Uh, and he, he is, here's the opportunity because the world is looking for a difference. You know, no one wants to go back to whatever normal was and no one quite knows what the new normal quite is yet. So here's the opportunity to, to, to create that. Every leader has an opportunity to put forth something and saying, this is what else is possible. Or this is what I'd like to do. How does that sound to you? Versus just the, the grinding that's going on right now. Tim, it's been fascinating as always talking to you. I've got two questions which I, I ask everybody as we're finishing up a conversation. Uh, the first one is, given all of the wisdom you've accumulated uh, in, in your life, what would you now tell the 35-year-old version of yourself based on what you now know? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Knowing what I know now at 56, I would tell that uh, young man, stop playing so small. It's all there. You can do it. It's available. But you got to be willing to play a bigger game and put yourself out there to play a bigger game. So stop playing so small. That's right. And last question is, uh, uh, you know, you know, I'm a music man. What's your favorite band or your favorite song? So you'll love this coming from Australia. And I get a lot of grief about this. My favorite rock stars, Rick Springfield. I feel like I grew up, I grew up with a guy back in high school, listening to Jesse's girl and listening to his music and, you know, from kind of a teeny bopper to where he's matured to even where, you know, he was on the spiritual quest and still is. And he still has his youthfulness about him. It's just, I feel like I've been on this journey with him through his music. And um, I guess the favorite song, it's, it's meaningful and it's powerful. It's Affair of the Heart. Well, uh, you're, you're a man full of heart, Tim. Always, always a pleasure to connect with you. Always a pleasure to visit and have a chat. Appreciate your time this morning. And uh, where, where can people find you? What websites can people find you on when they want to look up what you do? Johnpress.com. That's my, uh, uh, my wife and my partner, our website. And then um, we've also just joined forces with a few other consultants in the Washington, D.C. area called uh, longwavepartners.com. And if you want to email me directly, just email Tim at johnpress.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. We hope you enjoyed it. Head over to theleadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blog, retrieve a whole range of resources that we talk about in each episode. And if you are visual, a bit like myself, there are a range of videos sitting in our YouTube channel that you might find helpful. If you're enjoying all this, a review on iTunes or Spotify would be much appreciated. See you next time.